What happens next? Are we ready for it? Disruption. Change. Risk. Opportunity. Welcome to the AFIRE podcast special series, The Future. Part three, rethinking density dependent real estate. How will universities, retail and hospitality have to change their business model in a post COVID-19 world? Today, I'm speaking with the AFIRE Future Committee to separate fear from reality. Chaired by Holland Partners Group CEO Clyde Holland, along with committee members Martin Lamb, Managing Director of Credit Suisse, uh, Byron Carlock, the head of PwC Real Estate Practice, Brian Sanchez, the CIO of Lionstone Investments, and Chris Merrill, CEO of Harrison Street Real Estate. So let's start with uh, Chris Merrill this time. Um, Chris, universities have been in the news a lot these days, and their finances are certainly under a lot of pressure as COVID issues continue to make open universities difficult. How should we rethink uh, universities and university-related real estate going forward. Sure, and, and I think um, you know this began uh, well, well before COVID. I mean, what we're seeing uh, with universities, health systems, is um, the beginning of sort of a, a big wave in public-to-private partnerships. And so, for the past, I think four or five years, we've been working with these schools and sitting down with the CFOs and the presidents and sort of showing them that there are, are alternative financing methods besides just bond financing or, or capital campaigns for them as they deal with the, the mass and the vast amount of real estate they have on their campus. And a lot of that has deferred maintenance, operational and maintenance uh, issues associated with it. So um, what we've seen is is that, you know, has slowly grown. We've done now over 12 uh, public to private partnerships with universities, with health systems where we work with them on their on-campus real estate. And that's now expanding into any sort of real asset. That could be a data center on this campus. That could be a life science part of the campus. That could be wastewater. That could be a power plant. Uh, that could be district energy. So that was that was happening. Uh, and then again, as, as we've talked about on this call, there's things that have been accelerated as a result of COVID. And again, I think the financial pressure these schools are facing is is, is tremendous. And so now uh, we think, and we're starting to see those discussions really accelerated where schools are saying, okay, we have to think creatively about how do we shore up our balance sheet right now. And so we think that there is going to be a tremendous, tremendous, um, uh, I'd say, wave of uh, needs for capital at these schools. And, uh, you know, it, it will be challenging the schools that are going to fail. There's really... You know, unfortunately, what that does is that bodes well for the schools that will survive. They'll have larger enrollment trends. Uh, but there will be many schools that are going to need to figure out what they can do here. So uh, we think there's a lot of innovation with that. I mean, I think the tough times, that's what's always interesting about these tougher times, is it creates a lot of innovation. And so um, that's something that we, we certainly see growing. And, and, and again, I think that's that's one of the things that, you know, we, we um, when you talk about the, some of the positives and the, the silver linings, I think it will be really developing and enhancing relationships with those schools. Even even some of the schools that we're with now where we've had to de-densify the on-campus, it, it's allowed us to really work with them and develop relationships uh, to help them make it through the short term by thinking about the long-term partnership. So uh, we think it's going to be a, a terrific investment opportunity going forward. A lot of great schools out there, and as we've seen, that model is just not going away. Hey, Chris, when you know when you look at the the these institutions, you know I've served on my alma mater's board for quite some time, 
And we were looking at how do we unlock the value of the real estate that we happen to have and really looking at what is most effective, what is, is what, what are the things that we can do, as you say, to either dispose of, to partner with, to en- enhance the education experience while at the same time unlocking value. And so, I mean, I look at, you know, what you're talking about, and I think you're exactly right on um, that concept of looking at the best schools, the schools that are going to be the ones that thrive and really partnering in a way that helps them unlock that value, access to the liquidity to invest in their, their programs and also, as you said, shore up their balance sheet. This is a great transition into retail. Um now, if we are to believe the media and the, the conversations and the, and the fear that's out there, none of us will walk into a physical store again, and uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon are going to take over the world. Um, therefore, all our real estate that's in retail is essentially uh, nothing but dead malls. I, that sounds pretty extreme to me. Um, how are all of you thinking about retail? Is that indeed the case, or what's the, the truth uh, under? Underneath that kind of fear. Well, this is Byron. I'll, I'll hop in and just say, you know, the reality is between 85 and 90 percent of purchases um, still take place in inside four walls. The the pandemic has absolutely spiked e-commerce, and it was already growing, compounded at 25 percent a year, and just really, really has taken off during the pandemic. But in more normalized times, people are still shopping inside four walls. I think we are an over-retailed U.S. economy, and a lot of that space is going to be repurposed or torn down. Um, I think we uh, started the year at about uh, 22 or 23 square feet per person. Um, Canada has 13. Germany has three. And so you can see how over-retailed we are per capita. But that doesn't mean that our behavior is negating the need for four walls of retail for in-store visitation. It does put the burden on retailers to make a store visit special, for it to be experiential, for it to be uh, an opportunity to learn about products and then hopefully take a sack out the door when you leave. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so we're going to see a lot of restructuring, change to the buildings themselves, change of use. Um, one of the areas where there's a lot of retail and right now a lot of for lease signs um, is in the office environment. Uh, Martin, I'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of what are we doing with that retail space that's on the first floor of, of a lot of our offices and, and certainly a lot of our apartments as well. Um, what happens to that space if you don't necessarily, if it's not an experiential retail, but it's more of an amenity retail? Um, how does that change? Yeah, I mean, we we have actually in, in some of our buildings, even pre-COVID, but it's accelerated now in COVID is, is to take some retail space back, some dead retail space that we felt would be very challenging to, to lease. And we have turned that into amenity um, for the building or, or even, um, which we see as amenity, um, lower rent retail. So uh, giving space to kind of local retailers who couldn't necessarily pay the rental levels that maybe a Dwayne Reed or a Starbucks could pay, but uh, a smaller local coffee shop. Uh, that we don't see necessarily as as helping the the NOI of the building, um, but acting as amenity to to attract uh, a more diverse uh, tenant base. So that's that's what we're we're certainly looking at. But to, to be honest, you know, we have pivoted away from retail. Uh, we don't own any 
uh, retail specifically here, and the retail that we have is is only on the on the ground floor of of our office buildings, um, and it is definitely challenging. But you know, we are working with the restaurants, with the, with the retailers, um, giving them rental holidays, abatements, and and trying to make them survive because we do now see it more as amenity rather than just uh, as I say, helping the the NOI. Clyde, there's certainly a lot of authentic retail uh, in the markets that you work in. Um, how are you seeing it uh, evolve at this point? I think Martin's exactly right. I mean, we're looking at our retail as as tenant serving and and supportive. I mean, we have you know where we can get a an authentic user. Um, we created a transit-oriented district called Orenco Station in Hillsboro, which is essentially an urban node in a suburban location. And we specifically went to retail that was local, that created a real um, space and following, and we're, we're personally invested. So we have an individual who runs a Lebanese restaurant. We have, um, and it's his restaurant. We have another Thai restaurant where the proprietor's there every day. We have a French restaurant where the two partners are looking at it, and they have three locations in the Portland area, but they're not a chain. And we also went in, and as you said, this local coffee shop. And so we basically brought those together, and it's been very successful, but we're not pushing rents. We're having to do a little more TIs, but the acceptance when you create that little experiential culture has been proved to be very successful for us. The other elephant or, or, or gorilla in the room, I, I'm not sure which metaphor is the right one to use, um, hospitality. Um, hotels. Uh, what happens uh, with them uh, on a go-forward basis, and, and how are those going to have to evolve in this environment? I, I'm not sure who on, uh, on the line is the best person to talk through this, so please jump in, any of you, as you think about hospitality and the restructuring. This is Byron. I can attempt an answer. I mean, I think something like over 50% of the hotels in New York are still closed, and, you know, we, we in the sentiment expressed in Emerging Trends yesterday, it was said that we won't re return to conference convention and full business travel until the end of 23 or 24, which sounds a bit draconian, but you realize that those meetings are typically planned a year or more out, and you can realize that it could that it could take that long. Um, business travel, as according to American Airlines yesterday, is still down 80-something percent, and, and that's a big driver. Uh, so I, I think a large percentage of the hotel are going to have to be restructured financially so that their payment streams are elongated. And hopefully, it's a temporary phenomena that will come back as opposed to a structural phenomena that's changing forever. You know, Byron, I, I mean, you know, you asked about the hotels. And what I would say is I think that that we're going to, it's two things. One, we are going to move to a post-COVID uh, world, and there will be the need for hotels. Um, but they're, they're going to change. And I think that um, just like work from home, um, how much is fad and how much is, is cyclical? I mean, it's, it's changed forever. And what I would say is I think that there is a real desire on a number of our team members to be back at work, to enjoy the culture, the social, and those things. But there's also some elements of it, particularly for young families, where the, uh, the ability to have flexibility – around um, when you're actually at work and doing your work and not having the long commutes is a real advantage. And so we see a, a hyper model where there's, you know, some work from the office, some work from home as being a, at least a transitional model. Um, and I do think that we have too, too many hotel rooms. Um, we're going to see 
the need to repurpose some of those hotels. And it may give us the opportunity to bring on some less expensive uh, living and accommodation opportunities um, in terms of where we are. We have one uh, situation in Denver, which we're a part of, where we have the need to uh, relocate a, um, a shelter and the value of the land and the shelter will actually pay for a, uh, an old hotel chain um, and repurpose it and significantly increase the capacity and lower the operating costs. And so we're, we think there's going to be a whole series hotel hotels right now and very large um, destination, re, large retail centers that aren't connected to transit and experience. Those are the two that we see as having the most near term challenges. But as we see the shifts coming back, the, 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 the locations that really get the experience right and the opportunity to, to really mix, mixing residential into uh, retail centers, mixing um, the opportunity to take and look at what the long-term values of those and what the purposes could be, um, we think are going to really uh, drive the, the reemergence of hotels. But it, it, hotels may have the longest and hardest challenges that we see, uh, particularly where you don't have that experiential elements um, from where they are right now. And once again, we should remember that the hotel industry was already going through some transformation as we as it was responding to VRBO and Airbnb and other um, hospitality-related growth areas that were challenging the traditional hospitality model. And I agree. I think the repurposing, and we're already seeing them turn into healthcare uses for uh, recovery centers. We're seeing uh, certain hotels being repurposed for affordable housing. Um, transitional labor and and that's necessary that's a good evolution and then let's hope that the good hotels are 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 ready to reopen at some point soon to provide those experiences that Clyde was talking about because it's a part of our lives we want to travel we want to enjoy leisure but sadly the industry is going to have to go through a financial restructuring to get us there well, given that, that there's a lot of things that are restructuring, a lot of changes that are happening, and I'd love your uh, point of view on this, Christopher, is what are the obvious new opportunities? What is it that we're excited about right now and over the next 18 months? What are those kind of obvious opportunities that are just sitting right there and waiting for us to invest in? Christopher? Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, some of the things, you know, when you, when you talk about some of the asset classes there mentioned, we've been, you know, for the past four or five years really investing in the, in the life science segment. And uh, wow, we've seen the interest level really change in, in the past six to eight months there. And, and that's an asset class where, you know, it was a perfect convergence of sort of our education strategy and our healthcare strategy. And when you think about what life, not what life science is all about, there are cluster markets across the country, but that is growing. And so we think life science is going to be a great category going forward. It's, Unfortunately, it's fragmented. Uh, you know, it takes some time to uncover, but uh, to us, it's going to be a great area. There's going to be a lot of investment in, uh, you know, drug development, pain management, living longer, et cetera, et cetera. So that's going to be a big push. We're seeing um, certainly continued, continued strength in the medical office space as more and more technology advancements are moving things outpatient. So we think that innovation is going to create more medical office opportunities. Um, Unfortunately, I think one of the things that this, this period of time highlights is a lot of things around behavioral health. Uh, so we've been focused on the behavioral health area. And, um, you know, so I think we're going to see, a, a, you know, again, unfortunately, uh, more and more issues around addiction, 
mental health. Um, and uh, that's going to be, I think, an important thing where we as real estate investors can help that industry. It's, it's, it's very much backed by the private equity world where we can come in and do sale leasebacks with some of these firms. So we think a lot of investment in, the, in those areas. And, you know, the data center space and digital real estate um, is going to be an opportunity. And, and these are things that are not just U.S.-centric. These are things that, you know, we're doing this now in Canada. We're doing this now in Europe. And so these are things that you can start thinking global about. But, you know, what I like about those type of, of areas is you really feel like you're, you're, you're making an impact. You know, good, solid investing, but, but man, it's investing that feels good. And you know you're doing, you're doing you know, it's a positive impact, you know, on the world. And I think that's a, a great thing to get to rally the employees around and the team around. You know, you can sort of see really positive uh, impact. So I think, you know, for us, you know, you know, our narrow focus is in sort of that demographic space, but, you know, we see opportunities in the P3 space, working with universities, like we talked about. You know, we see opportunities to dive deeper in healthcare and behavioral health and life science. So, you know, those are sort of social infrastructure, if you like, and, and we think that's not going away and there's going to be a big focus on it. But, you know, you've got to roll up your sleeves and dig up those acorns. Um, it, 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 it takes more time. But, those are some of the things I think we're seeing that, that we're excited about going forward. What do you think are not just the, the obvious uh, kind of opportunities that, that you want to jump on, but what are some of those more difficult or challenging opportunities that, as, as uh, Christopher pointed out, you're going to have to roll up your sleeves and, and dig up some, some new acorns, Clyde? I, I look, I mean, I think his comment on behavioral health is absolutely right on. You know, when I look at what's happening in our uh, communities, um, you know, we manage 20,000, you know, units and the number of individuals who are, and the level of stress in the in at the individual level because of COVID and the isolation. You know, we've seen a number of situations where people are just having a really, really difficult time. And so this concept of behavior, health, wellness and being connected. Um, is going are really going to be drivers that we see un, that that are part of the underlying elements. The other, which you know, is a trend, is longevity, um, the ability to in the length of life, um, and in investment in the health as part of longevity. It's you know, some people have said it's not the you know the number of years, it's the number of uh, the amount of life in those years. And, you know, I know I've actually I've had some conversations with my kids about, you know, how much we're willing to invest in our health. And as I get old, as I get older, those percentages are going up um, from from that standpoint. But we really see, you know, very healthy communities attracting, uh, you know, the healthy seniors and people who have a focus and who maintain those focuses. And so, you know, the combination of behavioral health, longevity, wellness, uh, you know, authenticity, uh, responsible government that really meets the challenges of the safety, the education, the health care and planning. Um, are cities actually planning in ways that allow them to maximize the use of the existing infrastructure as opposed to continuing a sprawl, which we all know is very expensive? And so all of those things, you know, Byron, I think are really coming together and we're going to start to see these locations that are getting it right, not only be able to be attractors, but also be beacons for how to repurpose additional elements to add. And so the cities that are paying attention and are really focused on creating uh, opportunities and, and, and great spaces for their citizens are going to thrive. And those that, um, you know, become consumptive or 
um, decide to take odds with their employers and with people and different things from that standpoint, we see will go into decline at an increasing rate. Well, uh, we have actually run out of time. This has been a fascinating conversation and one that I think will continue for some time as uh, real estate investors and institutional real estate investors. We're ultimately making investments in the future. So the more that we talk about it, the more we understand it, and the more we can separate the fear that it is the end of the world versus perhaps the end of the world as we know it. Um, there's many opportunities, many ways of looking at it, but certainly we have to do it in a, in a thoughtful and methodical way. I want to thank uh, all the folks that, that were part of this conversation, Martin Lamb, uh, Byron Carlock, uh, Brian Sanchez, and Christopher Merrill for a fantastic and thoughtful conversation. But mostly I want to thank Clyde for conceiving of and leading this discussion uh, and for your emphasis, your continued emphasis um, on understanding, thinking through the future. So thank you, Clyde for your future focus. You're welcome. Excellent. So I, we're going to close out right now, um, but we will continue this conversation again. Before we close out, I want to make sure that we thank AFIRE's 2020 underwriters, Holland Partners, JLL, and Prologis. Thank you so much for making content like this possible. This podcast is produced by AFIRE, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial property in the United States. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. None of the content is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.